Welcome back to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I'm so excited to be on my 12th episode, and today is a special show because we have my good friend Jamie Harrison, we have Reverend Raphael Warnock, and we have Mike Espy, three individuals who I call friends who should be the next United States Senators from South Carolina, Georgia, and Mississippi, respectively. But before we get into what will be our 12th episode, I first want to just simply say thank you to everyone who has downloaded, everyone who subscribed, and everyone who spread the word about the Bakari Salas podcast. This thing has been growing, and we try to bring you good content every week, and I'm so thankful for the guests, and I'm so thankful for all of you. But today, I wanted to talk about the vice presidential vetting process, which has been royally pissing me off lately. If you've been following the news, you know that Vice President Biden is now reportedly down to anywhere between two to four choices. Senator Kamala Harris and former U.N. ambassador and U.S. National Security Advisor Susan Rice are apparently the two finalists with Congresswoman Karen Bass and Senator Warren being the other two under serious consideration. Now, everyone who knows me know that I think Kamala Harris is the clear choice, and you won't find a better debater against Mike Pence. You won't find someone with the kind of experience she has at every level of government. She energizes women, women of color, and particularly black women. In a general election, her background as a prosecutor and former attorney general is an asset, especially when we prosecute the case against an epically bad and criminal administration. Every poll on VP preferences has her ahead of the field. She has the requisite name ID and national profile. She's been vetted, so there are no surprises about her record. Her Senate seat is safe. And not to mention, she's a great person and absolutely one of my favorite people in the entire world. Now, this in no way diminishes Karen Bass and Susan Rice, both whom I think are phenomenal picks in their own right. And I would have no problem with supporting either wholeheartedly. In fact, I'm less concerned about who the VP will ultimately pick than I am around the process that unfolded during the past few months. In short, what concerns me most about this process and what it may tell us about a future administration is the role that old dinosaurs are having in shaping the perception of the veep stakes and the god-awful reporting around it that seem to only focus on pitting the black women against each other. For example, Politico's awful reporting from my good friend Chris and Natasha, where they call Karen Bass the, quote, anti-Kamala because she apparently, in their view, lacked the ambition of Kamala Harris, despite, despite vice presidents routinely being previous presidential candidates themselves and often harboring the same ambitions that are apparently disqualifiers for black women being considered for vice president or the various anonymous reports that people don't quite like Kamala without asking or sharing why they don't, which is probably some bullshit, or that Susan Rice is notoriously abrasive as if white men in politics are likable. In fact, let me just tell you, I know a great deal who are not. Think about this. Mitch McConnell has pictures of himself in front of Confederate flags, and Donald Trump has pictures with Jeffrey Epstein, but apparently Karen Bass Her pictures at community events with members of the NOI mosque in her district are problematic. Chris Dodd apparently expected Kamala Harris to be remorseful for doing exactly what white men do in every campaign, and the beat goes on. The common theme here is there are too many dinosaurs who still have way too much sway 
over a party that is changing and that no longer is one that they own. For a long time, people could write the checks, just a certain class. They could write the checks and call the shots and expect black and brown and women's votes without much accountability. You see, that day is over. So the push to tap a woman in general and a black woman in particular has clearly rubbed some of our old stalwarts, our dinosaurs, some of our old white men in the Democratic Party, they, it rubbed them the wrong way. My hope is that a Biden administration turns the page on a Democratic Party and Democratic politics dominated by these old dinosaurs and that some of these individuals who have emerged in this process, I'm looking at you, Ed Rendell and Chris Dodd, and even Republicans like Mike Murphy, we shall never hear from you again. Your time has passed. You see, I take Joe Biden at his word that he's a bridge to the future of democratic politics. That starts with making sure that we don't empower dinosaurs whose time has passed, particularly those with thoughts and those with stale views like Chris Dodd and Ed Rendell. And we stop writing shitty stories that pit black women against each other when we're not writing the same stories about how Gretchen Whitmer is the anti-Elizabeth Warren. I'll pass on all of this. And it's time to turn the page. Retire these individuals who are actually doing more work for the Republican Party than they are for our own. But now let's get into some refreshing news about the future of this great country. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. My brothers, Jamie Harrison. Mike Espy, and the Reverend Raphael Warnock. Let me just say welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We've had some amazing guests on this show, Jamie, and you are another one. We've had Hillary Clinton, Stefan Gilmore, Deshaun Watson, Charlemagne the God. Um, the list goes on and on and on. But today I'm so excited because... You're somebody I used to watch sleep in your office when you were still in law school at Georgetown. <laughs> People don't know that. You're somebody who uh, they always told us at OW to be more like Jamie, not like, and I won't mention that person's name who went to Morehouse and who didn't uh, quite make it. But uh, And just so you know, if your campaign needs absolutely anything from me other than dollars, I will write you the biggest check my wife allows me to, but anything else, I am so proud of you, my brother, Jamie Harrison. So thank you, thank you so much for, for doing this. Let me ask you the first question. For a lot of people outside of South Carolina, there's almost a disbelief that Democrats can win statewide. Talk to us about the Democratic and, and Democrat-Republican gap in South Carolina we've seen at the top of the ticket and how the state's evolving and how you plan to close that gap and win in November. Well, uh, Bakari, one, I am equally proud of you, brother. I mean, all of the things that you are accomplishing, but not only are you accomplishing, you're bringing other folks with you. And, you know, we are learning from your dad. We're learning from John Lewis that we stand on their shoulders. Amen. Uh, and it's incumbent upon us to let people stand on ours. And so uh, I want to thank you for, for that, man, and your leadership and your friendship. Uh, you know, I, I also like to say Bakari used to be my intern, too. I was. True story. I was more Barvetta's intern than yours, but I agree. <laughs> I claim you, Bar man. I claim you. Um, Barvetta, Barvetta and Yebby used to have me uh, run around that office with it with the crack of a whip. We used to go to Jamie's cubicle for a reprieve. Jamie and Hope for a little bit of a repeat. But uh definitely my brother. No, we I I uh truly, man, I, I'm just I'm just happy we're here. How are you gonna win in November? Tell the people that. Well, as you know. People like to make South Carolina out to be the reddest of the red 
red states. And it just isn't. Uh, it, it's a fallacy. Uh, and part of it, what we have here is we have a community of an African-American community, a strong African-American community that we got to engage, that we have to, uh, we, we got to illustrate to them why it's important to turn out. Because, you know, in some of the elections in the past, there hasn't been the interest because people haven't been addressing the issues that are important to them. They haven't been talking to them, haven't been talking to them about their hopes, their aspirations, their fears and their dreams for themselves and, and, and their families. And so we are trying to capture that. And we're actually trying to build an operation that will do just that. In addition to that, because not only can, I mean, we won't just win because black folks turn out. That will be a, a huge component of it, right? As someone who's run statewide, I can tell you that ain't enough. Exactly right. That's a huge component, but it is not enough. But it's also engaging folks. From the very first moment that I announced that I was running for U.S. Senate here in South Carolina, I, I said to folks that this isn't about Democrats versus Republicans or progressives versus conservatives, it's about what is right versus what's wrong. And there's a lot of things that are going wrong in South Carolina that are not partisan, or should not be partisan. The fact that we got 38% of our rural communities that have no access to broadband, and that problem has just been highlighted more. So that means you got Democrats, Republicans, Black folks, white folks, all living in those communities. And guess what? They can't get on the internet. And it's Amen. 2020 right now. It's not 1920. It's 2020. Just like we got electricity coming into these homes, we also need to have internet access because it impacts not only education, but jobs and opportunity. It also has an impact on our health care in the state. When I talked with the, the head of the hospital association, Bacard, uh, and I said, why are rural hospitals closing in South Carolina? Why close in, in your home county? And he said, Jamie, there are two things. There's one thing that you will probably guess, but there's something you probably won't even guess. I said, okay, shoot. He says, because we refuse to expand Medicaid here in South Carolina, that revenue. We guess that. We guess that. We guess that. But the number two is broadband. He said, Jamie, telehealth is such a huge component of how we do business in the healthcare profession that when you have a community that does not have access, then you can't do it. And it is dragging our hospitals down. And so that is the second component of it. And we need to have some people in DC with a vision to actually build the infrastructure that is needed here in South Carolina. And we're attracting Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Right now in the latest poll, I am beating Lindsey Graham with independents. I would have never thought that could happen. Not with the old Lindsey Graham, but this new Lindsey Graham. Whoa, whoa, no, uh, but you, you brought me to my second question. So yeah. <laughs> that literally is the second question I have. So what happened to Lindsey Graham? So I, I want to be clear because there are those of us who are from South Carolina. You and I are both from South Carolina. You served in D.C., uh, when you were working for uh, one of our amazing heroes in the spirit of John Lewis, Jim Clyburn. And we knew a different Lindsey Graham. This era Lindsey Graham is is totally different. You know, Lindsey was a senator from South Carolina who we always came to believe was the antithesis to Jim DeMint, right? Yes. If you exactly. ever needed anything, you would go to Lindsey. I mean, as a state legislator, when we needed something, we would go to Lindsey, not Jim. Then uh, Lindsey was someone who also told the truth about Donald Trump. You know, he he was a truth teller about Donald Trump. Now he's carrying Trump's water. So what happened to Lindsey Graham? Well, you know, I, I was shocked and I felt betrayed because I didn't always agree with Lindsey on policy uh, and, and politics. 
but I had respect for him. And I think so many people here in South Carolina, Democrats, independents, and Republicans, respected Lindsey because they thought at the end of the day, he would do what's in the best interest of the state and the nation. Correct. Um, and it almost seems like when John McCain passed away, that Lindsey Graham went away also. And it's, it's really, really sad. And there are a lot of folks here, and I constantly hear that question, what happened to Lindsey? I don't understand who this Lindsey is. But, you know, I had a Republican friend who told me once that they, they said, you know, the joke was when Lindsey first ran for Congress, that uh, he would go around to knocking on doors and say, hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, and I believe everything you believe in, right? So in essence, saying that he will be and do whatever you want him to do or be. And I think that is where we are. Uh, Steve Schmidt said in, in one of these articles that he equates this Lindsey Graham to a pilot fish. Uh, you oh, know, that's fish what I was going to get at. I mean, everybody believes him to be a fish, one of those pilot fish that is always around a big shark. And yeah. because John McCain has died, he needed a new big shark to be close to, right? That's exactly right. And that's not what we, you know, South Carolina, you know, our politics are always interesting in the state. But what people respect is someone with a backbone, a spine, some core values and conviction about who you are and what you are and what you represent. And why this Lindsey Graham is vulnerable. Because I could not be, Bakari, I'm going to be honest. The old Lindsey Graham, I wouldn't have had a shot at beating the old Lindsey Graham. This new Lindsey Graham, this man who doesn't have any core convictions and values other than I need to golf with the president, a man I call a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot, and now I believe that, you know, he's a, you know, second coming of Dr. King. Like, yeah, those two things can't coexist, and people don't respect that. Um, and so uh, that's what has given me a shot. Also, he doesn't spend time at home. This well, man hadn't had a, a in-person town hall in three years. So let me, let me, I mean, let me ask you this, because what, what I tell people, whenever somebody asks me about Jamie Harrison, I say, look, with the absolute most humility that I can possibly say, as someone who's run statewide in South Carolina, Jamie Harrison's running by far the best statewide campaign I've ever seen in my life, right? Period. Point blank, <laughs> period. I mean, even as even as someone who's run statewide, even though you don't have a, a you know, you you Jim Hodges had a Bubba ad, and Jim was a great candidate. I'm not disparaging Jim by any stretch. And he'll uh, text we, me about we he, both he, we both love Jim. He'll text me about this regardless and be like, I was better than my ad. So don't worry. I'm not saying that your ad and you weren't great, but he had a great ad. But you're running top to bottom a phenomenal ad. My my first question to you is how do you how do you campaign during COVID? Because you and I both I think we excel, and you may say that, Bakari, you're lying. I think we excel when we're with people, right? How, yeah. how does that How does that work? It's hard, man. It's hard when you are a hugging candidate. It's hard. I'm a when hugging you, candidate. You're right about. I, I, yeah. I, love, I love that hugging. That hugging and yep. touching. You got to hug and touch, right? You do. I mean, it's it's a part of the culture here in the South. It's a part of who we are. You got to have that personal connection because that's how you build that bond. That's how you build trust. And so it's hard to do that. And we've been trying our very best to uh, turn these lemons into lemonade. Uh, so we're still having the town halls, but they're virtual. And what I'm trying to do, Bakari, that, that I hope, uh, again, it, it's, it's not the same, but is to make sure that the ads that we put up on TV have heartbeat so that folks get not only a sense of what I'm going to fight for when I'm in D.C. and the policies and all. I believe all that's fine and true, 
But I, we, you and I both understand this, that when the average Joe Blow, the person that's not watching MSNBC and CNN and Fox News, but the average person that's got a job and a half and trying to put food on the table for their kids, they go to vote. They probably have a week and a half and they start to pay attention. And when those people go in and they pull that curtain, they think about who is it? Not that who has the best policy for me. What, what, uh, who does this best health care? That, that, that's secondary. But how do I feel here about this person? And how do I feel here in terms of your heart and your gut? And what I am trying to do through our ads and through our messages and mail and on radio is speak to the hearts and the guts of every voter in South Carolina so that they see who I am as a man. First and foremost, not who I am as a Democrat, not who I am as, as you know, a Senate candidate, but who I am as a man, because who I am as a man infuses who I will be as a senator in South Carolina, what I will fight for. And so I'm trying our very best to do that. So give me your, your one of your fondest memories of John Lewis. And, oh, and man. You, you got a chance to work with him every day. And I know that people are as you echo your heart and your gut, tell me what you thought and, and your fondest memory of, I, I knew John and my fondest memory was, they, you know, people call me Lil Cleve or Lil CL, you know this better than yep, most, because yep. like you don't have your own identity in South Carolina, either your mother's son or your father's son, whoever Amen. they knew you. And so I, I saw John Lewis four years ago at the uh, DNC in Philadelphia before I went out and gave a speech and you get you actually might have been speaking right right near the time we spoke on the same day yeah well you yeah. spoke before me when we were literally oh, I spoke, I, that's right that's right I spoke yeah. before you so that's right so I was going out and then uh, I saw him right before I hit the stage and he gave me this big hug and everybody was watching and it was just like little Cleve you know I I how's your dad doing how's your mom doing my, my wife loved your mom like it was a really good feeling what's your fondest memory of of mm. uh the right Reverend Representative John Lewis. Well, you know, Bakari, I love John Lewis. I really did. You know, if Jim Clyburn was sort of like my political dad, John Lewis like my uncle, right? My favorite uncle. Uh, his office, when we were in the U.S. Capitol, his office, I shared the left office, the, the wall of my office, I shared with John Lewis, his Capitol hideaway. So I would often go into his office, even late at night, and just sit there and look at his wall. And then sometimes he would come in with, you know, staff and all. And he said, hey, brother, what you doing? And I said, Mr. Lewis, I'm just sitting here taking it all in. But I, I talked with Mr. Lewis Bakari probably about two months ago, right after, you know, he you know, it was announced that he took ill. I gave it about a month or so um, because I knew he was getting all these calls. And I just decided to give him a call. And he said, brother, how, how's everything in South Carolina? I said, Mr. Lewis, I'm doing what you taught me. We, we're stirring up some good trouble here. And he said, well, brother, I'm so, I'm so proud of you. You keep going. You keep pushing. You keep being the positive person I know you are. But I love that man. You know, if the CBC is the conscience of the Congress, John Lewis was the soul of the Congress. And um, that soul is, is now gone. And I, I don't know if there's anybody can ever replace John Lewis and what he represented. Not I mean, uh, missing Cummings, missing Conyers. I mean, yes. basically, I mean, you have you have two people left. I mean, not two people left, but you have Eleanor Holmes Norton, who was a member of SNCC. You have Jim Clyburn. Uh, Those are the only two yep. that you really have who were around during that time. Let me. I know, I know you. I know you're campaigning and out. This show is a very important show for me uh, because we're we're doing great at Spotify. We're doing great with the Ringer. This is a show they and probably your book, would never... your book is kicking butt. 
So congratulations on that, man. We're doing great with the book, but this is a show that that the Ringer and Spotify probably wouldn't do. But it, it's Jamie Harrison, it's Reverend Ralph Warnock, and Mike Espy, three people that I want everyone to support and lift up. My last question to you is 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 kind of simple, but I know you have something to do, so I'll ask you to kind of wrap it up as you can. But you're going to win in November. I truly believe it. Um, I think that you know, South Carolina is a tailwind state. I don't mean any disrespect for, to you because you have to be in the position to catch the wave, right? Yeah. And yeah. and that's just that's just the work that you're doing. So you're going to win, and we're going to catch that wave. We're going to have a Democratic White House who owes South Carolina big. You have a Democratic House where Jim Clyburn is still in leadership. And I truly believe that we're going to have a a Senate Democratic majority that that you'll be a part of. So what are the first five things you want to do for South Carolina? And and what committees will you target and why? So, Bakari, one of the things I want to do that is near and dear to both of us, because we grew up in rural South Carolina. I believe that, you know, when you look at South Carolina, she is on the top of every bad list and on the, the bottom of every good list. In order to move South Carolina from those lists and, and juxtapose them, we got to do something about rural communities in South Carolina. These communities are, are like grapes on a vine and they, they are drying up in, in the South Carolina sun. And we got to do something. And so we're going to be rolling out some things soon to rebuild and revitalize rural South Carolina, to add on top of what Jim Clyburn did with 10, 20, 30. But looking at healthcare, education, jobs and opportunity, infrastructure, environmental and environmental justice issues, because all of those things are at play and all those things are dragging down the state and these people who live in the communities. And one of the things I'm telling people, rural does not equate to just white. Uh, I, I wrote that, a whole book about big, that. I wrote a whole book about that. Exactly I t- I'm tired of them saying that in working exactly class. Exactly right. Is, That's yeah. the biggest fallacy out there. And so you and I both know if we can address that, if we can tackle those issues, we will solve many, so many problems in the state. Um, and so that's across the board. I want to also tackle uh, some of our environmental justice issues, quality of water. As you know, it's a big issue here in South Carolina. I want to tackle, uh, you know, some of these issues as it relates to education, student loan debt right now, dragging down generations is an anchor to generations as it relates to the committee that I want to be on. It's appropriations. I mean, that that is the where, where'd you learn it? Where'd you learn that from, Jamie? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. That's a committee that touches every aspect of this government. And what we know we need here in South Carolina are resources. And so I want to make sure I'm sitting there and that when they're deciding how that pie is divvied up, I want to make sure South Carolina gets her slice. And that's really important, I think, particularly for our rural and impoverished communities here in South Carolina. Well, look, brother, I'm going to do everything I can do to get you over the hump. I, I know that people, it's weird because people oftentimes pit one. We, we've seen it with Kamala and Karen Bass. Oh, yeah. Who Jesse and, and Barack. We see it wherever it, it happens, but. I I am going to do absolutely everything I can do under my power to 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 make sure that you're the next United States Senator. I want your team, Guy King, and everyone else to know that I'm there for you 110. percent You have a great team, great staff. I love you, brother. Um, love you even too, more man. importantly, you, we have something in common that most people don't know. We we are fathers of amazingly beautiful black children, married to beautiful black women, and. I am, um, I'm here for you, brother. So whatever I can do, let me know. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast, Jamie Harrison. 
Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Give my best to your family and and, uh, and hug those kids for me. I will, brother. Be easy. Thank you so much, man. Okay, man. Take care. My good friend, the good brother, right, Reverend, future Senator Warnock. How about that? <laughs> Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. It's good to be here with you. How's it going on the campaign trail, campaigning through COVID and, and, and coming back, you know, being the leader of, of Ebenezer Baptist Church? How is it uh, after the amazing homegoing celebration of, uh, of John Lewis? Tell me how you're feeling, where, you're, where your spirit is, where your heart is, and, and how it feels to be out there campaigning for the United States Senate. Well, that's a big question. First of all, I'm deeply honored to be running for the United States Senate at any time, but particularly at this time in our country's history, I think we're at an inflection point. One of those moments in American history when we are a generation that gets to decide about the depth of our commitment to the American promise of of freedom and equality for all of God's children. And um, as I think about that, no one in our lifetime perhaps embodied it uh, more clearly than John Lewis. Uh, he was a walking, uh, living example of the American dream. I was honored to get to know him. I met him first as a student at our alma mater, Morehouse College. <laughs> and, you know, as it would turn out, the students were planning a protest. And um, we were trying to find our voice as activists. It was mainly a student led protest, but we reached out to see if we could get some of the influential people in the community, some of the leaders, some of the folks who've been elected. So we reached out to a whole range of folks, but the only person who showed up, uh, (laughs) the only elected official, the only big name was Congressman John Lewis. And he showed up and uh, he inspired us that night with his words, but more uh, importantly, with his presence. I had no idea years later I'd become his pastor and as I run for the United States Senate, you know, his example of a public servant uh, who's less focused on the next election and more focused on the next generation informs and inspires me. Before I dive into your Senate campaign, I think it's worth talking about how you got to the pulpit at Ebenezer, which is sacred ground in the Black church tradition. Where were you before Ebenezer and what's this experience been like for you there? Yeah, I'm a Georgia boy. I grew up, uh, was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, uh, in public housing. I'm uh, uh, one of many children in my family, 11 sisters and brothers. Eleven. Yeah, the knee baby. I was the baby next to the baby. And I'm the first college graduate in my family. I often say I went to Morehouse College on a full face scholarship. I didn't have enough money for the first semester, but somehow uh, I made it through. And I earned four degrees, got a Ph.D. degree. And about 15 years ago, I became the senior pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. I'm running because as I think about my own story, sadly, it's harder now. Mm -hmm. The kids growing up in struggling working class families, poor families today than it was for me. You know, I, I had a lot of grit and determination, but I also had a Pell Grant, a low interest student loan. Uh, now, all of these years later, a lot of our kids are having to mortgage their future in order to have a future. They're coming out, if they can get into college at all, they're coming out saddled with debt. Student debt has now uh, uh, exceeded credit card debt in our country. We should think I, about I that. Know. What is, I know. What does, I that, know. what does that mean for the hope index and the promise of people dreaming big dreams and 
pursuing entrepreneurial visions, the kinds of things that expand the imagination and the economy. So I'm running for the U.S. Senate because I, I, I think that when we unleash the potential and power of all of our children, the country's better. I was one of those children, and I want to pull somebody else up. So, you know, a lot of people that are listening and, and or watching and watching your campaign in, in terms of statewide Democratic prospects, many of us know that the state is turning blue. But outside of Georgia and maybe some people in Washington, Georgia still viewed as being a solidly red state. Stacey helped change that. But what do you think is driving Georgia trending blue? Oh, anybody who thinks there's a solid red state is not paying attention. Uh, this state has been changing over the last decade. And the good news is, you know, change sometimes moves in zigzag. But, yes, but where, where this electoral movement is concerned, this isn't coming in fits and starts in Georgia. We, we have continually closed the gap one cycle after the next. Uh, and so in 2016, you know, Hillary Clinton flipped some solidly red uh, districts uh, here in Georgia. By the time we got to 2018, Stacey Abrams certainly closed the gap yeah. uh, by registering uh, voters all across this state and getting them excited as they saw their own story in her message. And um, as a result, she came within 55,000 votes of winning. 1.4%. And that's after a whole lot of cheating. A whole on lot the other of cheating. Side. Yeah. I mean, they, they literally purged 500,000 voters one Saturday night here in Georgia. Ground zero for voter suppression. And in spite of all of that, in the June 9th primary, 1.3 million Democrats showed up. 300,000 more Democrats than Republicans. We outperformed them in um, the sixth district, where uh, Lucy McBath is. Lucy McBath, is, right? Yeah, uh, up for re-election in Newt Gingrich's old seat. We outperformed them in the seventh district, where Carolyn Bordeaux is going to be our new congressperson. We outperformed them in Fayette County, which has been solidly red for a generation. We outperformed them last month in Fayette County, and so the wind is at our back. Our people are motivated. They understand what's at stake as they're watching uh, handle a health crisis and an economic crisis about as poorly as anybody could. I think people are seeing that when we say elections have consequences, uh, man, this year, that's an understatement. Elections yeah, are literally a matter of life and death. We've seen over 150,000 Americans dead. Uh, most of that is unnecessary death. And uh, it's a result of, of poor public policy choices. And, and so, I, look, I, I enjoy being a pastor. I, as you point out, I'm pastor of one of the most iconic churches in America. Uh, in, the the in, the, in the world. In the world. And the world, sure. Because of the ministry of Martin Luther King Jr. I'm running for this office because I love the country. Uh, and it gives me a chance to uh, take the fights that I've taken up over the years into the United States Senate. You know, a lot of people heard about the fact that the wind is at your back and you so eloquently put that, but they don't know the work that you and Stacy have been putting in with the new Georgia project. Talk to me about what that is and how that's paving the way for Georgia to become more competitive. Yeah. When you see what uh, Stacy managed to pull off in 2018, and, and I want people to understand this because, you know, no, she's not the governor, but she won more democratic votes than anybody in history in this state. And, um, 
again, she came very, very close to winning. And it's a result of literally a, a decade of hard work. We've been registering voters in this state. She started the New Georgia Project in 2014. Uh, I was the spokesperson and then the chair. We've registered just through that organization alone some 400,000 new voters in this state. And we continue to do that work. Uh, and we're pushing against, pushing back against voter suppression. Uh, my church is actually a plaintiff in the lawsuit against the state of Georgia for its voter suppression. And the church entered that lawsuit not because of my candidacy. We didn't even know I was running or that this seat would even be available when our board voted overwhelmingly to sue the state of Georgia and the Secretary of State uh, for its voter suppression. This is based on the fact that Ebenezer takes seriously its spiritual heritage. We've been, we register voters at our church on Sunday mornings. And, you know, I think it's important for people to know sometimes pastors don't know what they can do. You can register voters. That's, that's a nonpartisan uh, activity. Mm -hmm. And if you read the gospel the way I do, and, and you see that justice is what love looks like in public, and that Jesus said, I came to preach good news to the poor, then you ought to be, and, and if you think the vote is a person's voice and their voice is their human dignity, the very image of God, then you ought to be registering voters. And so we're suing the state of Georgia for its voter suppression. Uh, I believe Fair Fight uh, organization mm -hmm. will have lawyers here on the ground to make sure that we secure the election come November. And um, we're gonna work hard. It's not going to be easy. But I think we're well on our way to flipping the state and winning the future for our children. I firmly believe you're going to win. I, I believe uh, in you, Reverend Warnock. I, I believe in, in your heart. I, I've been in your church. I've been around you enough to know that you're in this for the right reason. And you have something that some politicians don't have, even when they run for office, which is a vision, right? And you got to have a vision for the future. So you, right. you win in November. You'll have a Democratic House. Hopefully, you'll have a Democratic Senate that you'd be a part of. What are the first five things you're going to do for the state of Georgia? Uh, we're leading on health care. Uh, health care is critically important. It's hard to overemphasize how important it is. And I felt that way before COVID-19. Uh, I stood up when we were trying to push through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, I argued for its uh, passage from my pulpit uh, years ago. And when Georgia refused to expand Medicaid, I was arrested in Governor Nathan Deal's office saying that we ought to expand Medicaid in this state. It didn't make sense to leave 400,000 people in the Medicaid gap, rural hospitals closing, simply because we won't allow the people's own money to be of use to them in their own state. Because it's not as if by refusing to expand Medicaid, Georgia voters or South Carolina voters get their money back. We're just mm -hmm. subsidizing. Uh, the health care of people Correct. in other states. Correct. And so now, as a result of COVID-19, we got 500,000 people in the Medicaid gap in Georgia. And I'm running against uh, a Senator, Kelly Leffler, appointed by Governor Kent, who doesn't take COVID-19 seriously. She is standing with, with uh, Donald Trump. And so is Doug Collins, her Republican opponent. They're standing with Donald Trump as they try to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and leave 1.8 million Georgians who have pre-existing conditions without health care in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, who, who does that? Where do you get that kind of ethic? Uh, wh where is the moral mandate that says you ought to kick people off of health care in the middle of a pandemic? And so we'll be pushing health care. 
related to that, we'll be pushing the whole issue of economic justice uh, and making sure people have a living wage. Uh, I'm the pastor of Martin Luther King Jr.'s church, and you know, Dr. King spent his last days uh, especially focused uh, on the poor. And you remember he lost his life in Memphis defending sanitation, sanitation workers. workers. And um, all of us remember those iconic signs, I am a man, speaking to one's dignity and humanity. Well, as Dr. King made his way to Memphis, they were arguing for, for more humane conditions, but they were also arguing for a living wage and better pay. The sad thing is that today, the minimum wage in 1968 had more purchasing power than the minimum wage in 2020. Workers need a living wage. If we believe in the dignity of work, we ought to believe in the dignity of workers. And it's, it's hypocrisy to call people essential workers and not pay them a livable wage. So we'll be focused on economic justice. We'll be focused on voting rights uh, because all of the things that we care about, we can't get them done if, if people don't have a voice. And I, I, heard, I heard Mitch McConnell, among many others, stand up this week and say what a great man John Lewis was and how he was a man of integrity. And I wanted to say to Mitch McConnell, if you believe he's a man of integrity, why won't you pass his bill that's sitting on your desk? I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, how do, you, how do you call someone a man of integrity, lift up his work, and you won't reauthorize the thing that for which he gave his life or was willing to give his life. Even bring it for a vote. Uh, yeah, just bring it up for a vote. And um, so we'll be fighting for voting rights, uh, trying to address the outsized impact that big money has in our politics. Because when you think about gun reform, reasonable gun safety, when you think about climate change, a whole range of issues we care about, how is it that even when there is reasonable consensus among Americans about certain issues, we still can't get it done? It's because big money owns our politics. We got the best politicians money can buy. And so until we deal with the outsized impact of big money, until we deal with partisan and racial gerrymandering, until we fix the system, uh, many of the issues that we want to get done, we won't be able to get done. And so I, I, I think that as a pastor, and as one who comes from the faith tradition that I come from, what I hope to do is create allies in the Senate, mm -hmm. create coalitions uh, in our state and in our country, and do the work that not only puts our public policy or reshapes our public policy in ways that it needs to be reshaped, uh, but more importantly, redeems the soul of America. Because I think that that's really what's at stake behind all of this, whether you're talking about healthcare or kids' access to quality education or talking about the, the ability to have clean water and clean air. At the heart of all of this is a fundamental question about the covenant we have with one another and the soul of our democracy. What committees do you think you'll be seeking out uh, in your first session in the United States Senate? Well, I mean, I, I haven't given a whole lot of thought to that. Um, I'm, I'm more focused on getting elected and the work <laughs> Prioritizing, uh, yeah. That I would like to get done. And as a freshman senator, I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm sure there's some other folk who have something to say about what committees I end up on, but that's the work that I want to get done. And, um, you know, a lot of folks ask me, 
why would a pastor decide to run? And what is that? Uh, why, why would you do it? And, and it's a good question. And it's really because I look at my two little children mm-hmm. and, you know, I've got a four-year-old and a, and, uh, and a 19-month-old. And I think about the kind of world that I want to see them grow up in. And they and, deserve one better than this. And they deserve a world better than this. And I think we've had such a long tradition in this country of professional politicians who are focused on politics as their profession. And that's fine. I think there's room for that. But I think in the course of that, we've forgotten that there's another grand tradition. And that is really of the citizen representative. After all, we are a representative democracy. This idea that ordinary citizens who who may not see politics as their primary vocation would do, if you will, a tour of duty uh, representing other citizens uh, in our government. And that's what I hope to do. I I don't plan to stop being Pastor Warnock. I want to take the sensibilities and the commitments of a pastor to Congress. My last question to you is, is there, there are going to have to be, in theory, a few individuals who are, are Republicans or more conservative in the state of Georgia. What's your message to them? I, I know you have an amazing message that drives to people's hearts, uh, but in those suburban voters where we're seeing and where, where Donald Trump is faltering right now, where you have a great deal of opportunity with your sensibilities, with your uh, uh progressive but very understanding type of campaign you're running you know you 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 have a campaign that understands the boundaries of reality what can and cannot be done and what should be done what's your message to those um, suburban voters who you need a small slither of to get you over this hump my message is very simple all we have really is one another and there's <laughs> no escape there's no escaping that try as we might to get away from it. All we have is one another. And uh, we have a stake in each other's destiny. There's no gated community with gates high enough that can shield us and protect us from one another if there's a whole sliver of our society that has been uh, so robbed of hope and possibility that people start to feel like they don't have anything to lose. We can do better than that as a country. The, the good news is, is that this, this country uh, is the greatest nation, I, I think, still on the planet. And um, what brings us together in the United States of America is, is not country or ethnicity or religion. It's a grand idea. We the people. This idea of a diverse people becoming one, e pluribus uno. And I, I think that's true of all times, but in a real sense, you know, one Sunday morning I preached a sermon entitled The Parable of a Pandemic. And one of the points that I was making was that as tragic as COVID-19 is, what it's brought, brought into sharp focus is some eternal truths that, that we, we should have been paying attention to anyhow. Mm-hmm. Like, like the fact that, my, that I have a stake in my neighbor's health care. Like that, that's true all the time that my neighbor being sick and unable to access healthcare has implications for me. That's true all the time, but when you have a deadly, contagious respiratory disease, and all of a sudden my neighbor coughs and sneezes near me, and I'm concerned about that, then that really brings it literally close to you. Mm-hmm. And you and you realize, well, you know, I need that person to be covered. <laughs> 
And when we come up with a vaccine, hopefully, I need them to be able to access the vaccine. Or if there's treatment, I need them to be able to have the treatment. Well, you take that and multiply that uh, by, uh, you know, a thousand other issues in healthcare, education, having a living wage. Dr. King said, we're tied in a single garment of destiny. And um, I think too long we've been uh, duped by folk who have no vision, and so they major in division. They don't know how to lead us, and so they're focused on dividing us. Uh, the spirit of John Lewis and, and others like him remind us uh, that we can transcend uh, our differences, even our partisan differences, and put forward uh, in this generation uh, a renewed vision of, of the American spirit of, of equality and justice. Reverend Raphael Warnock, I want to say that my father's extremely proud of you. He talks about you often and, and sends wow. me notes seeing you on MSNBC doing good work. Um, he was proud of you from the pulpit, said that boy is good, um, is what he told me yesterday, watching his good friend and, and his homegoing wow. ceremony. I am happy to be able to call you a friend. I'm here for whatever you need. I'm glad you joined the podcast today on a special show where I'm lifting up my brothers, yourself, Mike Espy and Jamie Harrison. I firmly believe that anything I can do with my platform to get you guys even that much further to your goal, I'm all in because we need good leaders like you. And if my son can uh, grow up and 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 have that same uh, moral compass that you do, I think that he would be a great man. So thank you for being a guide and light for us. And thank you for coming to the show. Thank you, Bakari Sellers. I'm very proud of you and, and your voice and all that you offer in, in the public square. We need you. And so keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. And I owe you a check. So have, have the fellas reach out to me. I got you. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Thank you so much, man. So Secretary Espy, thank you so much for joining us on the Bakari Sellers podcast. I am excited about this episode because I get a chance to use my platform as, as growing as it may be to highlight friends of mine. Um, yes. Rob Warnock, Jamie Harrison, and you. Many people don't know that we go back to the Black Farmers case, and you've been we a do. we do. You've been you've been a trial lawyer, a congressman, a uh, secretary of ag. Talk me through the arc of your career, because for those who are, are listening around the country who just want to beat Republicans, tell them who you are and how you got to the point you are, because you are, you are one of the most dynamic figures in American politics today. Well, uh, I really appreciate that, Bakari, being in your podcast. Thank you so much. So uh, I'm not new to politics. I'm not new to Mississippi. <laughs> I've got the gray hair for a reason. And I started out, um, I, I was one of uh, 17 students to integrate an uh, all-white public high school of 800. And uh, that's what when, year was, you know, what year was that? It was 10 years uh, after Brown v. Board when uh, we had um, integration, but it wasn't enforced. So my parents sent my twin sister and I to an uh, all-white school in Bagari. It was awful. Every day I was the N-word on my locker to me in person. Teachers sprayed me with fire extinguishers in the teachers. Yeah. I've got stories. And... Uh, I just, um, it was just so awful. I believe I would just leave Mississippi once I graduated, I would never return. And even 
even after the schools integrated, all black, all white, I was a student body president. But as you might imagine, being a son of the South, yeah. when the students came over, the black teachers did not. Correct. So you had none of the black teachers at the formerly all black school came over. So as the president of the student body was senior class, I let a walk out and the superintendent docked my GPA two points for every day we were out. And we wow. were out three days. So here I am a senior in a high school trying to go to college, applying, and my GPA was negative. GPA was <laughs> Can you believe it? So I said, look, if I can get out of this racist place, I am never, ever, ever returning to Mississippi. So I left. I went to Howard University. That was a great, you know, great uh, way to uh, get back in the comfort zone. I went to law school in California, but my father died. And um, I returned to Mississippi, took the bar, passed the bar, and began to practice law with legal services. Then uh, after about four years of doing that, I said, okay, maybe I can have a broader mission, a bigger goal to help people beyond just being a lawyer. So I was the first ever African-American Assistant Secretary of State. Mm. And in Mississippi, that's a big deal because that office handles land and land loss. And I was director of the, uh, the lands division in that office. And a lot of people who had lost land you know, found it out and uh, they got it back. And then I became the first black assistant attorney general in Mississippi over the consumer protection division. So we were, we were suing large companies over consumer fraud and those kind of things. And then, then the uh, seat came open in the second district in the Congress, which was the uh, Delta district, the poorest district, the uh, of the healthiest district, the least educated part of Mississippi and all of that. So there was a race in 1986. In Bakari, I was uh, 29 years old, turning 30. I'd never run for office before in my life, uh, except for the student body president. And uh, I went to every African-American notable official, and I said, well, are you going to run for the seat? And they said, no, because it's not majority black. We have to wait for the opportunity for the seat to be reconfigured. And we may have to sue to do it. And it's not going to be long, but no black can win that seat. Well, but then at least I knew that in a, if I threw my hat in the ring, you know, the district was, um, population-wise, it was like 46% African-American. So I said, if, if I go to the district constituents with a message of inclusion, accessibility, rising healthcare outcomes, rising educational outcomes, maybe they'll be receptive and elect me. So I threw my hat in the ring, Bakari, and little did I know that there were two other hats in there already. <laughs> they were both <laughs> white guys. One was, you remember Jim Eastland? Of course. Big Jim Eastland, all right. Big Jim Eastland, everybody knows Big Jim Eastland. He was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee during the uh, Kennedy presidency. His grandson was running. And uh, there was an, also a name you may know, uh, Johnson, Governor Johnson. His son ran. So I had these two white legacy families and me. And that was great for me because I could talk about my grandfather. You know, built the largest African-American organization in Mississippi in 1920 called the Afro-American Sons and Daughters. 
built a hospital in 1924 where I was born in 1953. He didn't want black women to have babies in the cotton fields. So he got a dollar for a brick and built a hospital. He had a newspaper with, with 100,000 subscribers, African-American, so I can talk about my legacy. So I won the primary in 1986 without a runoff. And then I took on the Republican incumbent, beat him in uh, 1986, and I was the Mississippi's first African-American congressman since the Civil War days in 1986. And I was elected to the historic 100th Congress with Floyd Flake, Kwaisin Fume, who later became uh, NACP president. Floyd Flake was a pastor of a church in Queens, New York, and John Lewis. And John Lewis, I was gonna say 1986. You had four black men entering that 1986 class and John and I were just fast friends. We mourned John, of course, and uh, John was a bright light. Well, if Fumi left to become president of the NACP, Floyd Flake left to go back to Queens. I left because I became Secretary of Agriculture of the United States in 1992 when Bill Clinton asked me and John Lewis stayed and became the conscience of the Congress. So, um, so now, talk, after to people, now, talk to people about the importance of that job, because I don't want to skip over it. You and I, we got close over the black farmers lawsuit. It was my my first billion dollar settlement with a B and, and I got a chance to learn from people uh, like yourself. But talk to me about the importance and explain the importance of the Department of Ag to black folk in particularly and particularly black folk in the South. I'd be glad to. Well, the Department of Agriculture was created by Abraham Lincoln. All right. And it's been here since those times where everyone farmed. And um, if you look at the power of that department, it is awesome because when I was there in 1993, when I came in, we had 124,000 employees. Mm. Our budget was about $90 billion. We had, 100 and, uh, we had 80 offices around the world. And it concerns everything regarding not just farm payments and help for farm producers. It is over um, forestry, nutrition, which nutrition, that would be school lunches and EBT program and food stamps. SNAP, yeah, SNAP, SNAP programs, yes. SNAP program, it's over uh, food regulations or everything you go to buy in a grocery store. If it involves some sort of animal protein, uh, it's likely been through the USDA. Uh, when you look at rural development, rural water, rural sewer, rural phone, rural broadband, rural television, all of that comes through the, the USDA. And then the part I took a particular interest in also was international trade. Mm. You know, making sure they have new markets for farmers. And you know, the large companies like uh, Archer Daniels, Midland and Cargill, they're always gonna make their own markets. Yep. But sometimes small producers need intermediaries. So small producers like black farmers need uh, to be able to have growth markets for their products as well. And so I took a great interest in making sure that we could connect African-American farmers to African consumers. And I did that while I was in, uh, in USDA. So, you know, before, before I get to what you're going to do when you are United States Senator, there is an overarching question that people are going to ask. You know, in Mississippi, it's tough. 
I mean, I'm from yeah. South Carolina, so I know it's tough. But as we saw in Alabama with Doug Jones, and as we saw last cycle with Abrams and Gillum and Beto, the South isn't lost. And unlike a lot of states, people don't know this, Mississippi, y'all got, we refer to it as a shit ton of black voters. Yes, yes, absolutely. Y'all got a lot. What does the path to victory look like in a state like Mississippi? Mississippi is winnable. And I know that for three reasons. One is number one, we've already had a prelude. I ran for the same seat against the same intolerant, insensitive senator 18 months ago in a special election. But because it was a special election, Bakari, we were the last race in the United States in uh, November 2018. We only had six months to run. So when I found out the incumbent senator was retiring because of ill health, he's later since died. That was in March 2018, and I began to start running in April in elections in November. And I got 47% of the vote in yeah. Mississippi after six months running. So that's why I know we can win, and that's why I want to speak to you about the larger two points. Number two, that prelude showed me that we could win uh, because Mississippi has the largest number of black voters per capita than any state in the United States. Correct. We are almost 40% in pure population in Mississippi. So right there, you're starting with an incredible base to move from. And in 1986, when I was giving my concession speech on November 27th, you know, it was a sad time because we gave it our all. But honestly, I was standing there emitting these words that I'm sorry we lost. At the same time, my heart was buoyed because I could see the numbers. We won 99% of the African-American vote in the urban areas like Jackson. 99%? That's remarkable and 94% in the rural area. And the differential was a matter of organization. So we can get to 99% in the rural area if we had the resources to get, to get them out. So I was disappointed though that of the universe of voters, of everyone that turned out to vote on November 27, the black vote only accounted for 32 and a half. And Obama got 39. Yeah. So I was standing there at the podium, but I said, you know what? This can be done if I just had more time and had the resources. So we can win because, number one, we have more black voters in Mississippi than any state in the nation. Any state in the union. Now they're energized. Now they're informed. Now they're motivated. Now the flag has come down in Mississippi. Whoever thought that would happen? I, I Trust me, I, I've lived through a flag coming down and nobody ever thought that would happen. Correct. Me either. And so the black voters are energized. I'm now aligned with the Black Lives Matter movement leaders, all the young folks in Mississippi. And so now they're all for SB. So if you just look at black vote alone, we are now building and we are in the process of building out the largest, deepest, most robust black get out the vote campaign in Mississippi's history. Now, but we cannot win with black votes alone. Now you need another 10% plus one. We do. In Mississippi right now, and I'm speaking to you about data. This is not some stuff on my heart or some stuff I'm dreaming up. We've done the numbers. So we got 32.5% turnout. We need to get to 35 in the black vote. But in the white vote, 18 months ago, we got 18% 
we only need four more percent to make up that remaining part of that equation we need to win. So where are they? They are here in Mississippi right now. Mississippi is not immune to national trends. So elsewhere in the country, where's the white vote? It's in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. It's in the coastal towns. It's in the college towns. And the same in Mississippi. So in the suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, we have a large contingent of white voters that are leading purple now and even blue. And we've seen that because in the governor's election last year, 2019, we had a young black woman who had run three times for the state legislature where you served in South Carolina. She lost three times in a district that Donald Trump came to against me twice. So it's a very rare district, but she won by 14 votes Hmm. because she talked about education. She talked about healthcare because my guess we went up there and funded her effort and helped her. So we have these purple enclaves in these counties all over Mississippi. So if we go to those areas that we flipped, Donald Trump 16, Mike SB 18, are now more solidified for SB 2020. So these white voters are now openly mobile. They're white suburban women. They're highly educated. They don't like Trump. They're tired of his pandemic response. They need new leadership. And I'm running against somebody, Bakari. Oh, I know. Who in 2014 went to Jefferson Davis Memorial. She put on a Confederate cap. She put on a Confederate waistcoat. She held up a Confederate rifle. And on her way out, she wrote a note and she said, this is the best of Mississippi's history. Well, no, it's not. That was 2014, not 1914. (laughs) So, So these white folks know now that they want to turn the page. They want to move on from their, their racial strife. I believe they were invested in me, the confidence of someone that will lead us into a future, the third decade of the 21st century. And that's why I'm running. That's, listen, phenomenal. That's what I'm talking about. You, it, I remind people all the time that you've been around. I'm not calling you old. I'm calling you seasoned, right? Seasoned. You've been around. There you go. You've there been you go. around and you know, you know, Tell me, tell me what are five things you're going to do for Mississippi, though? I mean, people want to know. I mean, you, you can't. And this is what drives me crazy about Democrats. The reason I have you, Ralph, and Jamie on the show is because you're the antithesis to this. But Democrats oftentimes just want to tell you how bad their opponent is. What are you going to do for Mississippi? And a bonus question, what committees are you going to seek out? All right. All right, five things really quickly. One is symbolic and the other four material. So the symbolic ones is that uh, all of these states are able to send two statues of favorite sons to reside and be seen in the uh, Capitol Rotunda. Well, Mississippi sent two, Jefferson Davis and Jay-Z George. Now, everybody knows Jefferson Davis. I'll let everybody else deal with him. I'm going to take down Jay-Z George. Who is that? He was the guy. He was a state senator in Mississippi that authored the 1890 Constitution that ushered in the days of Jim Crow. Mm. You know, during Reconstruction, we had two black senators from Mississippi. We had two there already. Because of Jay-Z George, they were uh, rescinded and brought home. And you know, all of the bad stuff, the lack of voting rights and all that, all were restricted because of the codification 
of the 1890 Constitution. That's the guy that wrote it. And I want to take him down. I want to use my ability and position as U.S. Senator to, to bring that guy home. So we we're gonna we're gonna take down Jay Z. Who you gonna send? Who you gonna send? Oh, BB King. BB King. <laughs> BB Damn, Brian. I love it. I love take it. Jay Z and put up BB. Who can be against BB King, right? <laughs> Ain't nobody. Tell me the other four. What are the other four? All right, Medicaid expansion. Look, that is so important because Mississippi has refused to do that. We've lost $11 billion. 120,000 people are now without health insurance during this pandemic, and 65% of them are African-American. If we did that tomorrow, we could make sure that our rural hospitals remain open and make sure all the low-income people that go to those hospitals and can't pay that bill, the bill will be paid by the federal government by 90%. Number two, rural broadband. Mm. In this pandemic, the folks in the areas with robust Wi-Fi, they go home, they get their lesson out at the kitchen table. And the folks in the rural areas, like in South Carolina, Mississippi, they have to go to the library. They have to go to the junior college because there's no Wi-Fi in their hometown. I follow a STEM class. I'm the uh, old guy that motivates them, you know, the STEM students without Wi-Fi. And uh, I feel so bad that we have to meet at universities so they can get their lesson out, chemistry, physics, coding, and some mathematics. So that's three, right? So on number three, we have to uh, make sure that we can reduce the brain drain. So like you, we have, we have so many there with student debt. And because Mississippi is still sort of like a low-income pay state, people here uh, are not being paid what I advocate, which is a $15 minimum wage at least. So they're leaving Mississippi, going to blue states and states with, with a higher income opportunities. So I want to make sure that we can create opportunities and avenues for students to remain in Mississippi because they are good jobs with good wages here in Mississippi for them. And I'm doing more than that. I am the chairman of the board. You ask me what I'm doing. I'm the chairman of the board of a nonprofit organization that now is capitalized on about $400 million. And so we do four things. We offer home mortgages for first time homeowners in five states. So you want a home and you have credit and you can pay back a mortgage, you can come to my nonprofit and the likelihood that you'll be funded is really good. Number two, we partner with Goldman Sachs. And so we fund businesses for first time business owners through Goldman Sachs. So we bet them and Goldman Sachs will give us the money to provide the loan for the business uh, that would receive the opportunity. Number three, in medically underserved areas, we'll build medical clinics. We just got $50 million from the Treasury Department to build medical clinics through the new market tax credit program. And then in uh, areas without, um, that are food deserts, we'll come in and we'll build uh, grocery stores with the prevalence of fresh fruits and vegetables. So I'm doing that now. So as a layman, independent person without the political power, I'm doing that now. So think what I could do as a U.S. Senator putting all of this in a bill. So all of the CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions, all the ones where rich people need to be able to invest 
they hedge their money. They can invest in CDFIs and the new market tax credits. We're going to do that for them through the uh, commerce committees. And so that's Medicaid expansion, broadband, CDFIs, making black farmers more productive. And I'm a lawyer, but I think I would rather be on um, the Foreign Relations Committee or the uh, Commerce Committee so I can embed, the Finance Committee rather, embed all these ideas in the IRS code and make sure that they can all happen. Well, listen, brother, you, you just took me on a whirlwind. Most, you know, a lot of times people, uh, they look at, they look at uh, black candidates and they say, do they have the depth? And I say, y'all don't know Mike Espy because uh, he's been around. So I just want to thank you, man. I, I, I want to thank you for coming on my podcast. I want to thank you for talking to me. Thank you. Being a friend and a mentor. You know, we, we uh, one of the things that I don't even know if it's on our website. I got to talk to Pete about it, but we. We definitely, uh, Pete allowed me the, the the runway to be a part of a settlement and be a part of a case. It was my case in the firm and we settled for $1.2 billion and worked with good people like you and Greg Francis, Scott Weinstein. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just just good, good-hearted people. Uh, what's my friend's name? The state senator over there in Alabama. Uh, Hank Sanders. Hank Sanders, yes. Hank yes. Sanders, yeah, every, Andy Marks. Every, every black farmer, on the same day at the same time, got a tax-free $50,000 payment in their pocket. That's right. That's the work we did. So I love you, brother. I am sending you a $1,000 check. I encourage everybody else to contribute as much as they can. I believe my guest, we can be a United States Senator from the great state of Mississippi. And thank you, my brother, for coming on the show. Thank you, Bakari. I appreciate you and God bless you and kiss your babies for me. I will. I got enough of them. I will kiss them. (laughs) All right, brother. Thank you, man. 